John chapter 13 opens to a scene, a very special scene, a scene with Jesus in an upper room in the heart of Jerusalem enjoying a final meal with his 12 disciples. Traditionally, this meal was what was known as the Passover Seder. Historically, we know this as Jesus' Last Supper. In fact, John chapters 13 through 17 will focus exclusively on the events and conversations that take place during this fateful night. Now, the reason this is important is that it sets for us a particular context for everything Jesus does and shares with these men. Within the next few hours, keep in mind that Jesus will find himself being betrayed by Judas. He'll be arrested in the Garden of Gethsemane, abandoned by all of his closest friends. Then as this very night unfolds, Jesus will be illegally tried by the religious establishment. He'll be brought before the wicked King Herod, denied in the process three times by Peter. Jesus will ultimately find himself sentenced to death by a Roman governor named Pontius Pilate, though, you should note, he had been formally declared to be innocent. As this very night turns to day, Jesus will be brutally scourged totally humiliated, and forced to carry a cross down a road known as the Via Della Rosa. At noon, Jesus will be crucified at a place known as Golgotha between two common criminals. Sometime after 3 p.m., Jesus will breathe his last, declare it is finished. And then before sunset, he'll be laid in a borrowed tomb, the tomb of a man named Joseph of Arimathea. All of this happens in the next 24 hours. Now as John, an old man writing many years after the fact, as his thoughts bring him to this evening, this final evening, before he even sets the stage, he recalls in verse 1 how Jesus loved them. He says he loved them to the end. This was a passionate love, a committed love, A dedicated love, an agape love. A love, as we mentioned last Sunday, willing to go to infinity and beyond. While these 12 men were oblivious, largely, to what was going to happen, what was going to occur, what was on the horizon, Jesus knew that his time was running out, quickly expiring. Jesus had so much that he needed to share with them. He needed to maximize these final moments. And his first lesson presented a scene that John would never forget. Beginning in verse 4, he recalls how in the midst of supper, Jesus rose, laid aside his garments, and took a towel and girded himself. And after that, John recalls how Jesus poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the very towel that he was girded. Now, we're not going to recap all of these events. I'll just refer you to last Sunday's study. But an important exchange occurs between Jesus and Peter. The whole purpose of this is to explain the reason for the exercise. In verse 12, John continues, So when Jesus had washed their feet, taken his garments, and sat down again, he said to them, Do you know what I have done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you say, well, for so I am. If then your Lord and teacher has washed your feet, 
you also, Jesus adds, should wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you should do as I have done to you. Most assuredly, I say, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is he who is sent greater than he who sent him. If you know these things, blessed or happy, are you if you do them? We pick things back up midstream with Jesus saying in verse 18, I do not speak concerning all of you. I know whom I have chosen. But that the scripture may be fulfilled, and now Jesus will quote from Psalms 41 verse 9. To give you a little context, this is a passage, a psalm of David, when one of his best friends betrayed him. When the kingdom was in peril. David writes, he who eats bread with me, Jesus quotes, has lifted up his heel against me. Jesus continues, now I tell you before it comes, that when it does come to pass, you may believe that I am he. Again, this word he in your your scriptures will probably be italicized, meaning it's not in the original. When these things come to pass, you may believe that I am, and that's literal. Most assuredly, I say to you, he who receives, whomever I send receives me. And he who receives me receives him who sent me. In these verses, Jesus is articulating a few things to the men at this table that they simply wouldn't understand until after the events of this evening have played themselves out. We'll find this kind of a continual theme through the things Jesus shares. For our purposes this morning, what is important is this one line. Jesus says, I tell you before it comes, that when it does come to pass, you may believe that I am. The reason that's significant is that the purpose of all of the things to come to pass, the things we've already listed, was to reveal Jesus as God, as the great I am. Verse 21, and when Jesus said these things, he was troubled in his spirit And he testified and said, most assuredly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. Then the disciples looked at one another perplexed about whom he spoke. Back in verse 2, and writing, obviously, with the benefits of hindsight, many years later, John noted that even before the dinner had began, Judas Iscariot had already joined the plot, the conspiracy He had joined the religious establishment. They were going to betray Jesus. In doing so, Judas had had probably given them a time and a place that Jesus could be arrested away from the mobs who would, no doubt, riot to defend him. While the other disciples present around this table have no knowledge of what Judas has planned or his scheme, Jesus is fully aware. Before we get to the reaction of the men in this this room, I, I am struck with John's observation here that Jesus was troubled in his spirit. Well, Jesus knew what Judas Iscariot was up to. Don't miss the fact that Jesus was still bothered by it. Deeply bothered by it. Troubled. You know, it's sad, but we're often so quick to, to remove the humanity from Jesus' experiences. Let me ask, and, and it's rhetorical, but have you ever been betrayed? 
You ever been betrayed by a close friend? Someone you cared for and loved? Man, betrayal. Is there anything worse? You know, if you have, you understand the hurt and the pain that comes with it. Jesus chose Judas. And he loved him. And yet here in this moment, Jesus knew that Judas was stabbing him in the back. You know, of all the people to have walked this ball of dust we call earth, you would think that Jesus, of all, would have commanded some loyalty. You know, just the character of Jesus would have been very hard to betray. I mean, what had Jesus done, really, to warrant such an act? What was he guilty of doing to Judas to cause Judas to betray him in such a way? What's even more amazing about all of this is that while Jesus knew what was happening behind the scenes, he was willing to not just share a meal with the man who was betraying him, but he was willing to wash that man's feet. What a powerful moment. Oh, the love that Jesus demonstrates to even those who would hurt and betray him. And I'm thankful for that because at some point we've all betrayed him. Imagine the moment, again, getting yourself into the scene here. This low table and the disciples sitting around it, eating, sharing a meal, the banter, the laughter, the fun. It's Passover. Imagine the moment when Jesus looks around the room and sighs because he's troubled. And then he says to them, one of you will betray me. Like no one would have ever expected Jesus to have said that in this moment. Sure, they were all aware that Jesus was a wanted man. But the notion that there was a traitor in their midst, well, that was too much. Maybe from the multitudes, but one of the twelve? No, it couldn't be. John, John recalls how the disciples looked at one another. He says they're perplexed, specifically about whom he spoke. You know, also writing about the same moment as an eyewitness himself, Matthew, one of the other gospel authors, provides for us an interesting detail not recorded by John. In Matthew chapter 26, we're told, Now as they were eating, Jesus said, Assuredly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. And they were exceedingly sorrowful. And they, each of them began to say to Jesus, Lord, is it I? There's two things that I find Deeply fascinating about all of this. First, I find it interesting that these men were perplexed. So they get word there's a a traitor, and they're confused as to who it would be. You see, Judas Iscariot, it would appear, was not the obvious choice. Hey, guys, there's there's a traitor. And they're like, yep, we always knew it was Judas. No, not at all. Not only does this mean Judas had been masterful at concealing his plans, operating in the shadows, but he was able to keep whatever was going on in his heart to cause that kind of betrayal? 
he was able to keep that from being known by the others. Like no one, when Jesus says there's a traitor, thought his name's Judas. He has to be the traitor. The second thing that blows me away about, about this passage is this initial reaction of the other men. Jesus says there's a traitor and they all ask Jesus, Lord, is it I? You know, that, that really does reveal a measure of self-awareness that we should give these men credit for. I mean, they'll, they'll, they'll step in it and they'll mess things up as the evening progresses. But in this moment, they had some self-awareness. Instead of pointing the finger at the others at the table, they were all willing to admit something important. The fact that they each possess the capacity to do the unthinkable. Jesus spoke here a very harsh truth. There's a traitor, and to their credit, they all internalized it. Now, I don't want to deviate too far from the flow of the passage, but there is a lesson we should all consider. When God speaks a truth, maybe it's Sunday morning or in a devotional, but when you hear from God and it's a truth, a powerful truth, a difficult truth, instead of assuming that truth is given to you concerning someone else, you should have enough self-awareness like these men to realize it might be you. We should all every Sunday. Oh, I'd never do that. Great sermon, Zach, for everybody else. No, 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 no. We should come in and with each truth that the Lord presents and the quietness of our own soul, we should say, Lord, is it I? Is this for me? It's so easy to be like, yep. I know what's going on in that guy's life. You get him, Jesus. As opposed to saying, Lord, you get me. Verse 23 now. There was leaning on Jesus' bosom one of his disciples, whom Jesus loved. Now in context, this is actually John, our author. Simon Peter therefore motioned to him to ask who it was of whom Jesus spoke. So leaning back on Jesus' breast, he said to him, Lord, who is it? Basically what's happening is Peter's on one side of the table and John's closest to Jesus. Peter kind of motions to John, little, little glances. John, you get Jesus to tell you who the traitor is so you can tell me later and we can deal with this. Well, Jesus answers, and, and his answer seems to be directed to John. It is he to whom I shall give a piece of bread when I have dipped it. And then John recalls that having dipped the bread, Jesus gave it to Judas Iscariot, the son of Simon. Now after the piece of bread, Satan entered him. It's likely this private exchange between John and Jesus occurs in the midst of the other disciples asking, Is it I? Is it I? Is it I? It's a private moment. Again, Matthew kind of provides a more complete picture. He writes that Jesus answered and said, He who dipped his hand with me in the dish will betray me. The Son of Man indeed goes, just as it is written of him. But woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been good for that man to have not been born. Then Judas, who was betraying Jesus, answered, Rabbi, is it I? And Jesus said to him, You have said it. 
as it is with so many aspects of Scripture, we have to just take a moment and consider something important. Why would Jesus identify Judas the way that he does? Like, why this exercise of dipping the bread and giving it to Judas to indicate who the betrayer was? Why was this so necessary? Now, keep in mind, though we can only speculate as to his deeper motivations, there is no debating the fact that Judas was a free moral agent that he was a a, a willing participant in this dastardly deed. Now, on the flip side to this, the Scriptures are also clear that Judas' character had always been suspect. Even back in John 6, Jesus remarked that one of his disciples was a devil. In fact, in verse 18 of this chapter, Jesus acknowledges that he chose Judas knowing full well what was in his heart. Now, consider the dynamic of the evening. Judas came to the Passover Seder, already a member of this conspiracy. The dominoes were set. All that was needed was for Judas to initiate, to give that first domino a push. Though the disciples, the other 11, they're clueless. Jesus, well, he knows. He's fully aware. Most amazingly, even knowing what was going on in Judas' heart, Jesus washed the man's feet. Now, aside from the obvious demonstration of his love for Judas, this act of Jesus here as a host, dipping the bread and then giving it to Judas, there was a lot of deep symbolism to this. It intended to to communicate from Jesus to Judas friendship, brotherhood. Dipping the bread and giving it to someone in this culture, in its context. It was akin to giving a toast in ours. It was a demonstration of love, of favor. Even though Jesus has already acknowledged a traitor was sitting at their table. From Judas's perspective, he doesn't have definitive proof that his plans have been uncovered until when? Well, the fact is, is that he doesn't know that Jesus knew until the moment Jesus, having dipped the bread, gave it to him. And it's in that moment that Judas realizes he's been caught, exposed, red-handed. Jesus knew what he was up to. According to Matthew's account, Judas' response to this moment was to ask Jesus, Rabbi, is it I? Jesus confirms, and then John records probably one of the scariest things in all of Scripture, that after the piece of bread, Satan entered him. The only other person, aside from Judas Iscariot, we're told Satan specifically possesses, is the future Antichrist, at the abomination of desolation. (laughs) Again, If Judas knew, and Jesus was aware, why the exercise? I think that there's only one conceivable explanation. In an act of grace, Jesus was giving Judas a final 
out. Even though he was neck deep in this conspiracy to betray him, I believe that Judas still had a choice to make. And Jesus, in, in this act of dipping the bread and signifying some friendship and relationship, he's trying to influence Judas's decision. Judas, you can reverse course. Not only has Jesus demonstrated his love by washing Judas's feet, but now in sharing a piece of bread, Jesus is seeking to remind Judas, we're brothers, we're friends. It's as though Jesus here is pleading silently, but in Judas's heart loudly, Judas, I know what you're doing. I know what you have planned, but it's not too late to change your mind. All you have to do, Judas, just confess your sin. Just own it. I'll forgive you. You don't have to do this. You know, how radically different Judas's story arc would have been if in this moment in time, instead of saying, is it I, which was completely disingenuous for he knew it was him, Judas chose to humbly acknowledge his sin by replying, it is I. All the profound effects, the reversal of two simple words would have made in this man's destiny. Is it I? It's much different than it is I. Would have changed his life. Just two words. There's no doubt that Jesus was going to the cross this night regardless. Jesus even said the Son of Man in Matthew's account goes, just as is written of him. But then Jesus adds a very stark warning directed at Judas. He says, woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. A final warning. You see, Jesus, Judas didn't have to betray Jesus for God's will to still be accomplished this evening. How do I know that? Let me give you a truth that I'm very thankful of. God's divine plans are never dependent on any man. I'm glad that God's divine plans in me are not dependent on any man. It didn't have to be Judas. Jesus was going to go to the cross, but Judas didn't have to initiate things. You know, the story of Judas Iscariot is one that we don't contemplate as much as we should. Like, think about his profile. You go to his Facebook page. The thing's listed. He was a man uniquely chosen by Jesus to be one of the twelve. The closest disciples. This is the A-team. Not only that, but Judas was there. He heard every sermon Jesus ever taught. He was entrusted to be the treasurer. He saw the miracles Jesus performed firsthand. Think of it. Judas was there in the boat to watch Jesus walk across the water. He was there to distribute the bread and the fish when Jesus multiplied and, and, and fed the thousands. Judas, Judas was there to watch Lazarus come forth the resurrection power. Judas 
even personally and publicly proclaim the gospel when he was sent out with the others. Perform miracles himself and cast out demons. Judas, keep in mind, literally walked with Jesus for years. And yet today, he's in hell. Why? Well, aside from the fact that Judas resisted Jesus' gesture of kindness, aside from the fact that Judas failed to be persuaded here at the final supper, deciding to betray Jesus anyway, I believe there's a more simple reason than just that. Again, in Matthew's account, there is a subtle but profound difference between the responses of the 11 disciples who ask, Lord, is it I? And Judas, who asks, Rabbi, is it I? You see, Judas's core problem was the fact that Jesus was his rabbi and not his Lord. Sure, as his rabbi, Judas would have seen Jesus as a wonderful moral example. As a rabbi, Judas would have sat at the feet of the greatest teacher there in Jesus. Greatest teacher the world ever has ever known. However, and this is the lesson that we should draw from Judas' life. Friend, if Jesus is just a great moral example, a person to live your life by, or for that matter, a teacher. If Jesus is those things, but is not your Lord, then you will share the same destiny of Judas Iscariot. Jesus must be more than your rabbi. He must be your Savior. Well, second half of verse 27, then Jesus said to Judas, what you do or what you're doing, do quickly. But no one at the table knew for what reason Jesus said this to him. For some thought, because Judas had the money box, that Jesus said to him, buy those things that we need for the feast, or that he should give something to the poor. Having received the piece of bread, Judas then went out immediately, and it was night. And the way that John typically tells a story, kind of takes a step away from the scene, he takes a moment, and he explains something that we need to know. And that is, the, that is the, the reason why no one reacted to Judas being identified as the traitor, or for that matter, did anything to stop him. Other than John, no one at the table knew. Again, these things were in private. There was a lot of confusion. No one knew what Jesus and Judas had discussed. In fact, the assumption, John tells us, of the others there was that Judas, well, he got up and he left for one of two reasons. Either because he had the money, they needed more supplies for dinner, or Jesus wanted to, to make a gift to the poor. Seems to be something he would often do. Well, verse 31, so when Judas had gone out, Jesus says, and this is to the remaining 11, who are at the table, and on a side note, for chronology, it's at this point the other gospel authors tell us that Jesus institutes communion. Communion was something that Jesus instituted after Judas had left, and not before. But Jesus says, now the Son of Man is glorified, 
and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself and glorify him immediately. One of those moments you love John's 600-word vocabulary. Little children, I shall be with you a little longer. You will seek me, and as I said to the Jews where I am going, you cannot come, so now I say to you. Now since washing their feet, Jesus has been launching verbal hand grenades, one after the other. First, he says one of them's a traitor. Dun, dun, dun. Now that Judas has left the building, everything's set into motion, Jesus drops another bomb. He says to them, and I'll paraphrase, I'm about to leave, and you can't come with me. What? Now, I'm not a Greek scholar, and I don't play one on television. But those who are Greek scholars, they make an interesting observation about this text. Apparently, and again, I'm regurgitating things that I've read. But in the sentence structure, and the Greek, and the punctuation, the things that Jesus says here were not matter of fact. Basically, wherever the translators place, whether it be a comma, a semicolon, or even a period, that as you're reading through the text, you should pause. And the reason for this is that as Jesus is saying these things, he's likely pausing in these moments. That he's saying these things with what is likely, at least from the way the Greek structure is presented, in a very somber tone. It's emotion. Going back to verse 33, look at it again. Jesus begins, little children, or literally my little children, pause. He looks around the room. I shall be with you a little while longer. Pause. You will seek me. Pause. And as I said to the Jews, where I am going, you cannot come. So now I say to you, and, and there's another pause. As he collects himself. Verse 34. A new commandment I give to you. Pause. That you love one another. As I have loved you. That you also love one another. You can feel it, can't you? By this, all will know that you are my disciples. If you have love for one another. This new commandment that Jesus gives is interesting for a few reasons. First, the command that you love one another is unique for, well, it's the only commandment that Jesus ever gave. Jesus was really not in the business of issuing these type of declarative statements. A commandment. That was Moses, not Jesus. The second reason that this is really interesting to me is that on the surface, this command to love one another, it doesn't really, it is, well, I'll just say it this way, it's not new. 
Not even in the context in which Jesus is saying, is this a new commandment? This is actually quite an old one. Like, in fact, earlier in Jesus' ministry, he's challenged to summarize what's the greatest commandment. And so in Mark chapter 12, Jesus says, well, the greatest commandment, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength. That's the first commandment. And the second, I'll just give that one to you as well. It's like this. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. You see, this idea of loving our fellow man was not exactly a new concept. And yet, what makes Jesus' commandment here new isn't the exhortation, we love one another. What makes this new is that we're to love one another as Jesus has loved us. You see, Jesus here is redefining the essence of our love for one another. Like the new angle to an old idea is that no longer are we to love others as we love ourselves. No longer are we to love others in a neighborly sense. Jesus here, what makes the commandment new is that he says we're to love one another, but how? In the same measure, with the same type, the same kind of love that Jesus has loved us. That's heavy. And, and just in case, if you have any confusion, what that love looks like, the, the kind of love we're to love one another with, well, in Romans 5, 8, we're told that God demonstrates his own love towards us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. What makes this all the more challenging is that the demonstration of this type of radical love is the very way Jesus says that the world will know that we're his disciples. I mean, it ups the ante. As a matter of fact, loving one another isn't a suggestion. Jesus makes it a commandment. It's the main identifier that we've received his love that we're part of his family, that we love others like we've been loved. You know, how in the world is that kind of love possible? I mean, let's be, let's be real for a minute. Like, how is a selfless and sacrificial kind of love, like Jesus demonstrates to us, actually attainable? How can we love others in this type of way. You know, John, again, he's writing as a, as a much older man, years after the fact. And it seems that John wrestles with this very thought. And here's his explanation. It's lengthy, but let me read it for you. In 1 John chapter 4, he says, Beloved, let us love one another for love is of God, and everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. He who does not love does not know God, for God is love. And this, the love of God, was manifested towards us, that God sent His only begotten Son into the world, that we might live through Him. And this is love, not that we loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, little children, 
If God so loved us, we ought to love one another. No one has seen God at any time. If we love one another, God abides in us, and his love has been perfected in us. By this we know that we abide in him, and he in us, because he's given us his spirit, John writes. And we have seen and testified that the Father has sent the Son as the Savior of the world. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him, and he in God. And we have known and believed the love that God has for us. God is love. And he who abides in love abides in God, and God in him, love, has been perfected among us in this, that we may have boldness in the day of judgment, because as Jesus is, so are we in this world. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear, because fear involves torment. But he who fears has not been made perfect in love. And then John summarizes his thoughts. He says, we love him. Why? Because he first loved us. If someone says, I love God and hates his brother, he's a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen, how can he love God whom he has not seen? This, then John says, is the commandment we have from Jesus. Referencing back to this moment, that he who loves God must love his brother also. According to John, the only possible way that you and I can love one another as Jesus has loved us is for two things to occur. One, our love must be a reciprocal act that stems from the demonstration and the receiving of His great love for us. You can never love someone like Jesus has loved you if you don't first experience Jesus' love for you. Love, in a sense, it flows downhill. From Jesus to you, from you to someone else. <laughs> Secondly, Jesus has to love through you. Like, how can you love like Jesus? Really, friend, there's only one way. You allow Jesus to love through you. You want to love your wife in the same kind of love Jesus has loved you? Good luck. What's required is you to get out of the way and allow Jesus to love your wife, and you're just his hands and feet. This is what John talks about, the, the indwelling of the Spirit, God inside of us. This is how they know. You see, this is the only way. And in and of yourself, such a manifestation of love is impossible. Selfless love demands as little of self as possible. The very essence of our love should stand out in this world as being foreign because it's not of this world. It's otherworldly. It comes from heaven. Our love to one another should be the fragrance of Jesus manifesting in our lives and in this world. Verse 36, so Simon Peter said to Jesus, Lord, where are you going? <laughs> I love it, Peter. Peter totally skips over the whole new commandment thing. <laughs> the whole love each other as I loved you. Peter's still stuck on, you're leaving me. But Jesus says to him, where I am going, you cannot follow me now. But you shall follow me afterwards. And clearly Jesus is speaking 
of a future eternal life we'll enjoy with Jesus in heaven. But Peter says, Lord, why can I not follow you now? I will lay down my life for your sake. And Jesus answered, will you lay down your life for my sake? Most assuredly, I say to you, the rooster shall not crow till you have denied me three times. You know, to be honest for a moment, I think Peter gets a really bad rap for this exchange when he really doesn't deserve one. I mean, Peter gets, he's kind of the whipping boy of Scripture. You know, we just hammer on Peter. But think about it and its context. Like his question, why can I not follow you now? I don't get it, Jesus. Why is this? That question, it's birthed from what? A sincere desire to go wherever Jesus was going. I want to be with you. Why? Why? Can't, why? Like from Peter's perspective in the moment, he simply cannot imagine Jesus going someplace he wouldn't be willing to follow. Like even if that path meant death, Peter says, I will lay down my life if that's what's required. And the truth is that Peter's actions in the Garden of Gethsemane will somewhat demonstrate a sincerity. And I say somewhat. So the, the temple guards come in to arrest Jesus. And everyone flees. But Peter, I mean, he's already made a promise. So he pulls out his dagger. And he's looking around. There's a bunch of guards who are also armed. He's like, nope, I'll lose that one. Um, I got to defend Jesus. I got I to gotta do something. And we're told that he attacks a servant boy. And he's not a good swordsman because he cuts the guy's ear off. He can't even hit him in the head. He attacks a boy. I mean, Peter, he's sincere. He's just way misguided. And then what happens? Jesus actually bends down, picks up the ear, puts it back on the kid's face, looks at Peter, and then Peter runs away. You know, the initial problem with Peter's zeal is that it initially centers itself upon things that he just doesn't know and couldn't have known. Like the path before Jesus, the path Jesus is talking about, was one that Peter couldn't join. It, it was a path Jesus had to, had to go by himself. Like only Jesus could make a sacrifice to atone for sin. Only Jesus possessed resurrection power to conquer death in the grave. As David Guzik wrote, Peter could never die for Jesus until Jesus first died for Peter. That's true. You know, in Peter's mind, he thought he could extrapolate out the worst possible scenario. But he couldn't. Peter had no idea what was coming that night. And frankly, he wasn't prepared for it. In fact, Jesus will tell him that Peter, in spite of his zeal, will end up denying him three times before the rooster crowed at daybreak. You know, beyond all of that, and we'll see this reality play itself out in Peter's life through John's gospel, 
But Peter's fundamental problem ends up being illustrated in a statement he makes. Look again, he says, I will lay down my life. I will. You see, Peter's will was of more concern than Jesus' will. The basis of Peter's relationship with Jesus in this moment was founded upon the sacrifices Peter was willing to make for Jesus. Later, it'll get readjusted where it'll be based upon the sacrifice Jesus made for him. Peter, (laughs) over the course of this evening and the days to follow, is going to learn some important lessons. Now, in closing, I want to go back to the way our author John defined himself in this passage. I skipped over it in a moment, but I want to return to it. Look again at verse 23. We read, Now there was leaning on Jesus' bosom one of his disciples whom Jesus loved. Now, Now note the disciple that Jesus loved, this phrase. It's not the last time John's going to refer to himself in his gospel, in this way. So why is that relevant? You know, in our world, there seems to be a grand struggle. And the struggle seems to center itself ultimately on who I am. Identity. And yet here, John presents an interesting thought we should consider. When presented with the chance to identify himself in his own narrative, John doesn't even use his name. He identifies himself instead as the one whom Jesus loved. Like, who was John from John's perspective? John seems to see himself simply as a man loved by Jesus. And for John, that was more than enough. You know, when you consider yourself, what drives your identity? Is it your race? The experiences that come from that? Is your identity based on gender or a sexual preference? Has your identity, who you are, become dependent on your career, your successes, or a position that you've earned? When you identify yourself, how do you do that? Aside from these things, has your identity been relegated to a component of family life? Is your identity found in being a great husband? Or for that matter, is your identity wrapped up in being a mom? Friend, as a Christian, is your identity based in what you're doing for Jesus? Is it based in sacrifices that you're making for him? John is writing this gospel of grace. As an old man who had lived quite a life, John was a pillar of the church, an apostle, a capital A apostle. And yet, as an old man who had done so much, when he thought about himself, What mattered most, where he found his identity, was the fact that he was a disciple and whom Jesus loved. That's who John was. And John was fine with it. 
are you? So, Father, Lord, we just let that exhortation